And welcome to part two of today's Richard Rand's show, season one, episode five, entitled Polite Dinner Conversation. Welcome back. Welcome back. And thank you for bearing with me for part two of today's episode of Richard Rants, season one, episode five, entitled Polite Dinner Conversation, part two. We're talking about Michael Moore's new movie, new documentary available free, just dropped like Beyonce. Dropping an album yesterday, free for all to see on YouTube.com or on the YouTube, as Bernie Sanders would say. And I like how Bernie Sanders says things, although some people think he sounds angry. Hey, I'm angry too, actually. I am disgusted and angry at the state of our nation, at the state of our world. I'm horrified. So is this an uplifting show? You know, I want it to be. And when our politics becomes more uplifting, it will be. But the struggle is on and the struggle does not end. No, it doesn't. The struggle continues. Just can't stop quoting Bernie Sanders, can I? The struggle continues. And what we have is a struggle against, on my part, a struggle against fascism and corporate oligarchy, Plutarchy. That's a struggle that I want to be a part of. The struggle for human rights, for equality, for human dignity the struggle against oppression, greed. That's, that's my struggle. That's Bernie Sanders' struggle. He does a lot more for it than I do, but it's not about that. It's not me, us. Now, he gets accused of being communist, which he's not. As I pointed out earlier, there's no way that Bernie is even really radical by world standards. But our tilted media, our corporate tilted media, doesn't stop portraying him as that. Wow, the media is a piece of work, isn't it? Um, they sit there getting bullied by the bully in the bully pulpit day after day and just meekly take it for the most part, just meekly take it. You know, one of my favorite podcasters, Mehdi Hassan of The Intercept, talked about that in an excellent podcast that I just listened to earlier today, entitled, The Media Helped Elect Trump in 2016. Are they doing it again? And he had a fantastic guest on 
to discuss it, media expert and critic Soledad O'Brien, who many of you may have heard of. The commentary was brilliant. And they talked about how the media helped to elect Trump and appear to be doing it again. How the media just allows Trump to sit there and bloviate lie after lie and act like a unhinged maniac, mentally ill, narcissist liar that he is, and they just they don't portray that, which is just incredible. They, they had a very good insights, very good insights into how the media just lets him kick them around and played a whole series of clips about, and you've probably heard it by now, and I don't even like to talk about it because he gets way too much airtime, and that was part of the discussion as well. If we know that he's sitting there giving propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation on every two-hour daily quote-unquote press briefing, then why, oh why, is the press airing that garbage live for the nation to listen to? Why, oh why? They quoted a British, they quoted a British journalist who wrote about the way that Trump behaved at this press conference, which is like a maniacal, crazy man. And you know, the American columnists go ahead and they normalize again and again. They normalize this madman in the Oval Office and they report as if he was making sense. And all the while, he's not making sense at all. He's acting like a crazy, insane little child. It's incredible. And I'm just scrolling here through the the transcript of this interview that Mehdi Hassan had with Soledad O'Brien, and you can check it out at theintercept.com uh, podcast. Really, really incredible. And, well, I'll just have to give you an approximation of what this British journalist who was at the daily press briefing said he opened up his article with essentially saying there was a toddler having a temper tantrum at the press briefing today 
Now, this is how it was opened by a British journalist who is not constrained by the same corporate normalism that the other journalists there are following. He told it like it is. Because if anyone watched that, and I can't watch it anymore, I can't watch that crap. Soon as that orange maniac liar opens his mouth, I'm just so disgusted, I gotta turn it off. So I can't watch it, but I do hear highlights in the podcasts that I listen to and the news shows that I listen to which are the exceptions that actually do tell it like it is and do portray this narcissistic, lying fool, bloviating ass in the White House for what he is. And Bernie Sanders, by the way, also did not pull any punches in describing him. And I could quote Bernie as calling him a pathological liar and a fraud. I mean, that's pretty straight up and true. Oh, if only Bernie were the candidate. Oh, I would so love to see him, and he would do it too, in a debate with that orange, disreputable, sorry excuse for a wannabe gangster president. I would love to see Bernie tell it like it is. Unfortunately, that's not to be. So we got Biden. And by the way, we got to support him. That's right. The way Bernie said, we got to support him. I still believe Bernie. You know, he ain't the Messiah or nothing. You know, the... Uh, the anti-Bernie people like to act as if we're cultists. They keep saying that we're cultists because we follow this grassroots movement, because we support this grassroots movement for human rights and dignity and justice, social and economic racial justice. <laughs> This makes us a cultist. Wow. And there's this other bad word that they use against us. And that's that we're, we're uh, populists. And that same bad word is used against Trump to say that he's a populist. And when they use that word in a pejorative way, what they're trying to say and what they're trying to imply is a few things. One, that populists are fascists, and that's not necessarily true. And two, that populists really, you know, don't know what they're talking about. They're just fooled by a leader who is a uh, somebody who runs a cult of personality where people just follow blindly without reason. That's not really what a populist is. I got educated myself. I, I read this article in Harper's Magazine, incredible magazine. So, so intelligent and 
It's got a really good mix of incredibly insightful and well-written news stories, along with a lot of amusing anecdotes and short stories, some poetry, uh, the Harper's Index, which is a very interesting quick read of a compilation of indexes about the modern world. Check it out, Harper's Index. You can Google it. You can see what some of the old ones are. But anyway, they have some of the best progressive writers. Of course, The New Yorker also is in that category and similar. Uh, Harper's comes out once a month. The New Yorker comes out every week. Subscribe to both of them. I love Harper's. Love, love Harper's. I, I give a whoop every time it arrives in my mailbox. I keep it by my toilet <laughs> and then move it out there. TMI, but I read it. The New Yorkers, I try to catch up on, and sometimes I've got a bunch of back issues piled up on my reading list. But when I do get to them, it's incredible, incredible journalism. And in the latest issue of Harper's, there's an amazing article by Thomas Frank, who's one of their main editors there, called The Pessimistic Style in American Politics. And I'll go ahead and put a link to that article as well. I did post it on my timeline on Facebook. But, uh, okay, I thought I put the link. What happened here? Oh, there it is. Okay, excellent. All right, so I put that link on my... Uh, comment thread for this live Facebook live podcast. And those of you who are listening to it later on the podcast, I will see what I can do about putting it on that as well. Or you can just Google Harper's the essay, the pessimistic style in American politics. And to get to what it is, it's about populism. What is populism? What is a populist? And I did not even know what the origins of that word were until I read this article by Thomas Frank. In fact, the word populist was coined in the late 19th century by a democratic movement that was devoted to bringing social justice to the masses, the mass population of laborers and uniting both the farm workers and the industrial laborers, all of whom were being terribly exploited by the capital elite, the capital class elite. I've got behind me here, a one of their cartoons, which you can see here, which I'm not sure how much you'll be able to read, but it is a cartoon from that time about the populists. It shows the robber barons robbing the regular citizen of their taxes. The robber barons are pre presented as thieves. 
but they're thieves that are have the faces of politicians of that day. Okay, the railroad monopoly, the shipping monopolies, and also Congress, because Congress was in the pocket of all of those monopolies. My, my, how long things go on and how much they stay the same, right? So they change, so they stay the same, because lo and behold, we currently have a Congress that is controlled by the moneyed interests that are exploiting the population for the benefit of the wealthy. Well, the populists back in the late 19th century started out, and I do encourage you to read this article on Harper's. I posted it by Thomas Frank. In Kansas, the movement was called the, uh, the party, the People's Party. They were called the People's Party, and they wanted something a little bit snappier, shorter, that said who they were and what shall we call ourselves. And they went back to the Latin root populus, which means the people, because they're the party of the people, people's party, and they coined a new term, a populist. So a populist originally meant the people, meant a party that conveyed and fought for the will of the people. And now that term is being derided by the Plutarchs and the oligarchs, the elite financial classes, who believe that the people, despite what it says in our 200-some-year-old Constitution, Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, all these quaint old documents. <sighs> Despite what it says there, today's modern political elites who are beholden to the major corporations, wealthy interests, feel that, surprise, surprise, those masses, they really don't know enough to properly guide what needs to be done in parentheses, for them. No, they, they just don't have the wisdom. They're, they're hayseeds. They're country hicks. They're uneducated. And, you know, we say that about Trump's followers, and for a large part, that's kind of true. <laughs> but then they turn around and say, oh, the old Bernie's followers are the same. No, they're not. See. Bernie's, and I don't want to say followers because that just plays into the terminology that they would like to use to say that we're cultists. You know, you're followers of a religion. Wow, come around to religion. Back to another topic that is not considered polite dinner conversation. Yeah, we're not followers because it's not him, it's us. But we are supporters and we are fighting for the justice, the social justice, the economic justice that 
the human rights, the recognition of human dignity that every human deserves, every human. That means a human that is not from this country. That means a human that has a different country, color, different religion, different gender than us. All precious human lives, every one. Those that are mentally ill, I could go on and on. They're all precious humans, and they all deserve the dignity and consideration of a human. They are not pawns to be used for profit, to be used for power, to be exploited and discarded. No, every human being is precious. That reminds me of a song. Oh, <laughs> a song from an old Woody Allen movie. Um, every sperm is precious. <laughs> Classic old song. Um, Woody Allen was a funny guy, and oh, how could I quote Woody Allen? Because we know now that he's a pedophile and a rapist. <sighs> That's a whole other topic. How do you separate or do you separate the art from the artist? Can great art come from terrible people? Well, the answer to that obviously is yes, because if we go back and we look at the great art of our entire history, so many of those artists were horrendous people and that does not excuse them. If you create a great work of art, but you hurt people, that's you're, you're a horrible person. You're still a horrible person. But what about that piece of art? Is that a bad piece of art? That's a tough one. We'll talk about that on another show. But, and I did again digress, as I am wont to do, and every once in a while we'll veer off into a rant. And that is why they call me Richard Rants. What I will go back to right now is Michael Moore's new movie because it is about the most serious threats that we face as the human race together. Every precious human, but not just the precious humans, because not only are humans precious and have rights, but animals are also precious and have rights. We have to recognize that. And nature itself is precious and has rights. And our planet is incredibly precious. And without it, we're all dead. And without the animals, we're all gonna be dead too. Most of us, almost all of us. And we are moving at breakneck pace. And I know you don't wanna hear it because it's not a nice thing. But this planet is being killed 
this planet as we know it. Sure, the cockroaches and rats are going to survive. And someday the planet will regenerate. You know, it takes, what, a million years or something for life to develop after a cataclysm. Yeah, sure, the planet in some form will survive in some millennia to come. But the planet as we know and love it, that the human civilization, such as it is, has developed, that planet is dying. And we killed it. We're killing it. And that's the sad truth. But I'm not here to say it's hopeless because it, it's not. It's not dead yet. Yeah, 90% of the wildlife on this planet is gone. But that 10% that's still here is still beautiful. Yeah, we've paved over and destroyed most of the planet. I can't give you an exact percentage. If you watch the movie, they'll probably give it to you. But what's left is not dead. As Jeff Gibbs said in his interview on the podcast, Rumble with Michael Moore, episode 72, came out yesterday. There still are a few redwoods left. Here in California, there's some redwood groves, some old growth still left. There are still wild animals. There are still a few fish in the sea. There are a few gorillas out there still in the wild. We haven't yet killed them all. And if we just turn around and get things together and reverse direction, we can save a portion of what's left. But what we need to do, and we'll find out more in this documentary and why I've been afraid to watch it so far is because one of the producers said, you know, after watching this, you're going to need to talk to someone because it is mind-blowing. It is. Because even those of us who are environmentalists, who cared about the environment, who care about the environment, who are even activists for the environment, it turns out we've been going about it wrong. We've been short-sighted. Because even if you ask the best environmentalist, the best environmentalist activists out there, if you ask them what we've been doing, what we can do, they will all say the most important challenge that we have in the world right now is the global climate crisis, which was called climate change, which was called global warming, and now it's the climate crisis, the climate emergency. We all know what it is. We've seen the increased 
natural disasters happening left and right, the hurricanes, the droughts, the unprecedented heat waves. I mean, in India, the heat got up to, what was it, 130 degrees? I mean, it's literally, it's to the point of an oven and uninhabitable. And vast swaths of this planet are becoming completely uninhabitable. And that's the trend. So yes, global climate catastrophe is huge. But more than that, we also have a global ecological collapse going on. And it is not only due to climate change. It is also due to how we have been exploiting this planet for production purposes for a century or more. And this incredibly rapacious exploitation is leading to the demise of the planet that we love. And this exploitation is on the idea that economies must continue to grow continually in order to support our lives. And we've become accustomed to a lifestyle which is dependent on continuous growth of our economies, which is entirely unsustainable. Which means that, and this hurts, the Green New Deal is not the solution. Wow. Because the Green New Deal involves green energy, and green energy involves more exploitation. We got to change the entire idea of capitalism.